Friends, our scripture this morning is going to come from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Um, we'll have it up on the screens. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to, to turn there at this time. If you have a Bible app, you're free to use that as well. Um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now, uh, we're in the midst of this uh, series in our church on a movement of God. A movement of God, the story of John Wesley, the church and me. And, and here's kind of the foundation for this series. We believe that at, at some level, um, we all desire to feel as though we are part of something that is bigger than ourselves. And that's one of the great truths um, of God's story, is that right from the beginning, God has been writing a bigger story than any of us, and yet God has called each of us by name to be part of that bigger story. And we see God moving in the lives of people and families and communities and churches and the world um, through the pages of scripture. And, and we see that throughout history. And as we, as we seek to define uh, what it is um, to be part of something like that, to be part of a movement of God, something that is special, something that is holy, uh, we acknowledge that one of the greatest witnesses we have in the church is that of our ancestors, those who came before us. And so we thought it would be great um, to preach these scriptures alongside uh, the history of the people called Methodist. This is Apex United Methodist Church. Maybe for some of you, you've been Methodist your whole life. Maybe for others, it's your first day ever stepping foot in a Methodist church. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, we're going to learn something today about how this movement began and how it took shape um, really during the 1700s, so 18th century England uh, through a man named John Wesley and many people um, who interacted with him. Now, e each week we're going to point to a different movement marker. We've done so already um, the last two weeks. The, the first week we looked at John's mom, Susanna and how her faithful acts of obedience to what she felt God calling her to, to be, to be a, a good mom to her children, to be someone who educated her children well, um, to be someone who uh, helped to form her children in the faith, that those simple acts of obedience were really the spark behind what would then um, be John's, uh, John's character that would lead him to, to really start this movement. Last week, we talked about John Wesley at Oxford University and this little club he formed called the Holy Club and how he sought to reform the Church of England really um, from within, really beginning within himself in pursuing holiness and helping others strive for accountability. And then, you know, eventually that started to, to catch fire and then to spread throughout the land. And as that happened, as that happened, uh, one of the things that John Wesley encountered was a fair amount of criticism and pushback. And, and that'll be what we focus on today, um, how when we are a part of a movement, we will often have to find ways to navigate pushback and criticism well. And that's exactly what Jesus um, is encountering in our scripture this morning. 
In Mark um, 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus finds himself encountered by the Pharisees. These were um, the, really the standard bearers of the status quo of the day. Like they, they held the religious law. They knew the religious law word for word. And any time they felt that people were acting outside of that law, they would call it out. And so that is what's going on in our scripture this morning. I'm going to read it for you. This again is Mark 7, verses 1 through 5. says, now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now you see, the Pharisees had an issue with Jesus because Jesus was allowing his disciples um, to act in a way that was outside of the custom of the day and was actually outside of the Jewish law at the time. Now you can find these Jewish laws um, throughout the Old Testament, really primarily through the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Torah. That is also that's just called the law. And in Leviticus, specifically in chapter 11, you start to hear language of what is clean versus what is unclean. And, and you, you read it um, a bunch, but really if you wanted to just read from Leviticus 11 through Leviticus 15, that would give you a pretty good um, understanding of, for instance, what type of animals were considered to be clean and unclean. So what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. What type of material was considered clean and unclean. Um, what to do if someone who is unclean touches something that is considered clean and the other way around. And there were several different steps to take if any of these things happened. Um, some of them would be as, as, you know, not simple, but as simple as you're exiled for the day or for the evening or for a week. Others would be a lot more harsh. You could be put to death. So, but what is clean and unclean was very, very important. I don't know if we have any like, you know, germaphobes in the house um, or like people who like to sanitize everything. But Leviticus 11 through 15, you wanna, you wanna learn something about what's clean and unclean, either to feel better about yourself or to just receive some biblical affirmation. Um, go for it, you can read that on your own time. So this is what the Pharisees are presented with. They're presented with a moment where people are doing something outside of their tradition, outside of their scripture, and they respond. Now, Jesus was living into um, something that actually we talked about last week. Last week we read a scripture where Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And oftentimes how that presented itself is that Jesus would be presented from a Pharisee or from someone who knew the law well, they would say, well, what about this? Or I just saw your disciples do that. Or I just saw you do this. And Jesus would say something like, well, you've heard it said before, X, Y, and Z, but here's what I'm telling you today. So oftentimes Jesus would have like a deeper meaning, a deeper truth 
that people weren't getting at with the law. That if you just read the law for the letter of the law, you would miss what God was trying to really tell you in and through it. And it was true here as well. Jesus would go on to respond to the Pharisees in a way that only Jesus could. Um, he, would, he would tell them uh, how they were missing the point. And ultimately, what he would do is he would make a difference between what goes into someone and what comes out of someone. That what comes out of someone is a reflection of what's inside. So it's a reflection of the heart. And what Jesus would say is, you don't become unclean by what goes in. It's what comes out that makes you unclean because that is a reflection of who you are. So what Jesus said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. And that's from Mark 7, verse 20. There's also another um, you know, great story in scripture. This doesn't have to do directly with Jesus, but with Peter, uh, the, the one, the, you know, the disciple that Jesus said, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. Peter in the book of Acts has a vision in Acts chapter 10. And a sheet is brought in front of Peter and it has all of these animals that again, the law says are unclean. And Peter hears a voice from heaven, God, telling him to kill and to eat those animals. And Peter says, I can't do that. It's against the law. And then God responds in that moment to Peter saying, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. So there was a larger truth um, to be identified in, in the midst of, of reading the letter of the law. And we see this, we see how Jesus responds to this Jesus, who is trying to usher in this, this great movement of God that he is the fulfillment of. We see that that's true um, with Wesley. Wesley, who, you know, had started this, this movement as really a, a, just a desire within himself to pursue holiness. Then, you know, his younger brother Charles and some of his friends wanted to hang around and pursue holiness in the same way. Well, if you fast forward 10 years after that, you'll see that what started as just a small group of guys meeting in a dorm room at Oxford had really, you know, caught like wildfire across the land. And one of the primary reasons for its spread was a man by the name of George Whitfield. Now, you may not have ever heard the name George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a Presbyterian preacher and, and just as a, an aside, I think this is really important because George Whitfield was a member of the Holy Club. He was Presbyterian, right? And, and, and John Wesley was part of the Church of England. Now, they were diametrically opposed on some very foundational theological beliefs between what John Wesley held and what George Whitfield held as a Presbyterian. But they were able to find space to encourage one another in love, to seek holiness together, and then to spread this movement of Methodism throughout the land. Now, John was very by the book. You know, if he was going to preach somewhere, it would be in the pulpit on Sunday morning. He was a fellow at Oxford. He wasn't stationed at any specific church, but he would often get asked to guest preach. So he would go and he would preach for people, and you know, that's, what, that's how he preached. He'd go and he'd preach in the churches. George Whitfield would go out in the open air and just start preaching. Now, if you read any American Christian, uh, Christianity history, 
the revivals that took place in the, in the mid-1700s um, here in America and then how revival swept across uh, England at the time. If you've, if you've done any study on the great awakenings that happened, it is hard to read that history without hearing about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was like Billy Graham before Billy Graham. That's who George Whitfield was. He would go out and he would preach to tens of thousands of people. They would come from all over the place. Now, an important thing to understand is that there wasn't just simply a desire to, to go out and preach to a bunch of people because you could go out and preach to a bunch of people. So, you see, George Whitfield was doing that, and Wesley wasn't. Wesley felt like if he were to do that, that he would be participating in something that he considered vile. It's actually the word he used. He would consider it to be vile. That it, was, that it was an infringement on the mission field of pastors who were sent to those places. But the problem is, is that there were other things going on in the church that were hindering people from experiencing the message of the gospel. For example, they lived in an agrarian society. And so there are many people who were working on Sunday mornings who could not find space and time to go and to worship in church. These people often worked in the fields, some worked in the coal mines, it wasn't always possible for them to get to church. There was also a certain um, attire that was expected of people when they went to church at the time. And many of these people that Whitfield and, and Wesley would, would preach to in the countryside would be people who could not afford that attire that would make them you know, look like they belonged in church on Sunday morning. And there was also the issue that, that many churches were practicing this, um, this thing of, of pew rentals. Pew rentals. You essentially pay for your seat. Not a bad, where, any staff in here? Not a bad, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but they were, they were practicing, you know, pew rentals. So it's, it's some places, if you, you literally couldn't afford to go to church. You couldn't afford to go to church. And so there was a very practical response needed to that. But Wesley held off for quite some time. He considered field preaching to be a vile act. He did not consider it something um, that, that he would really be up for until, until Whitfield finally got him to come and join him for um, a session of, of open air preaching. And when he went, um, he said that he calculated probably 30,000 people in attendance. 30,000 people there to hear George Whitfield preach. And it was to that experience that Wesley said he, quote, submitted to be more vile. <laughs> submitted to be more vile by preaching outdoors. Hearing that story, you know, helps remind me of an important truth about pushback about navigating um, criticism, navigating you know, barriers and walls that might be put up in front of us when we're trying to move ourselves somewhere. And that is that oftentimes, uh, the, first, the first place where we will find pushback is not actually from external sources, it's actually from within ourselves. Before Wesley could even get to dealing with other people, he had to deal with himself. He had to get to a place where he could understand why what he was feeling called into was necessary such that it would move him into an area where he might not be totally comfortable in the moment. 
but he had to get to that place within himself. So the first pushback that he had to deal with was his own. But after some time, um, Wesley decided that he was going to go for it. So he went to Bristol, England. And that first month, the first month that he started really going for it with open air preaching, um, he said that within that month, he calculated probably about 47,000 people came to hear him preach. I don't know how they counted people at that time. Um, I wish I counted like Wesley. But so 47,000 people, about, he said probably about 3,000 people per time he went and preached. And as you might imagine, the conflict that Wesley had to deal with within himself um, started to become a conflict he had to deal with with other people. Because then pastors of the area would start to write letters to Wesley. They'd start to write letters to their bishop about Wesley. They'd start to write open letters. Y'all ever seen these open letters, that, an open letter to whoever, and then it's plastered everywhere and everybody can read it? So that was happening. At that time, they'd get an open letter in the newspaper, and then everybody's reading it about how this guy, Wesley, and his buddies were coming around all these areas all over the countryside, and they were infringing on the ministries of the pastors and the, the pastors who were appointed to be in those places. Now, Wesley, again, was very by the book. So his initial response was, well, I'm not, I'm not a parish pastor. I'm a fellow at Oxford. So I don't really have a church. So I can preach wherever I want. And that's how he would, that's how he would respond. But ultimately, um, he came up with this response that, that he is often quoted with. Um, and this is, this is what he said. He said, I look upon all the world as my parish. I look upon all the world as my parish. Thus far I mean that in whatever part of it I am, I judge it meet, right, and my bounden duty to declare unto all that are willing to hear the glad tidings of salvation. Now, I think it's so appropriate on the song we sang prior to the message, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Because if, if I was to name um, kind of like the root, oftentimes, the roots of the pushback that we experience within ourselves and from those around us, oftentimes is fear. It's oftentimes based in fear, a fear of the unknown. A fear of the unknown, um, a fear of, of not knowing whether what you are doing is good or right or necessary. And oftentimes when we experience that fear, it makes moving forward in whatever direction um, we, we seek to move harder, harder. It impedes us. Now sometimes that can be really good. You might be getting ready to make a really big decision. I know Amy and I, we recently bought a house. That was a really big decision. When we were really getting ready to make that offer and make that decision, that was a little scary. Now it was scary, but it was a good kind of fear because it made sure that we knew that that wasn't a light decision. We needed to take it seriously. We needed to make sure that we were on board when we made that decision. So fear is not always um, something that is, you know, completely bad. But when it comes up in a way that prevents us from living into something that God is calling us to do, 
we have to remind ourselves that scripture tells us that where the spirit of the Lord is, that there is freedom. That God calls us to live into the spirit of peace and the spirit of freedom and a spirit of trust in God. That if God is calling us to do something that might feel uncomfortable to us and to people around us, if we really believe that it's God, then we have to trust that God is going to see us through it. This is what Jesus experiences with the Pharisees, it's fear. And the fear grows so much that ultimately the Pharisees call for Jesus' death and execution. That's how far it gets with the Pharisees. We're, you know, we're coming into it early on in, in Mark chapter seven, but eventually the fear comes through and it reaches a fever pitch and they have to decide how to respond. That's why this reminder from Jesus is so important. That there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. The spirit that we claim from God resides within us and then empowers us to live into this great truth of God. Now, I'll say that for Wesley, he recognized his own fear and the fear of those around him. And he recognized it in such a way that it allowed him to actually shape you know, his response for why he felt this way. And, and it is something that is so fundamental to Methodism that, that it's still very much a part of our DNA. And, and that's this, that the scope of God's call is not something you can limit to any one human being or any one parish or any one anything. And that the scope of God's call on someone's life is not determined by any group of people here on earth, but it's determined by God. And what Wesley started to understand is that when, if we're gonna build the church, the church needs to be built on the identity of Jesus, on the person of Jesus, and not on the identity or person of, of any one leader or pastor. This is where we get the foundation for what we refer to as itinerant ministry. Anyone ever heard of that before? Anyone heard that word, itinerant ministry, before? If you've been around the Methodist church for a while, you will know pastors move from time to time. Pastors are appointed by the bishop. They come, they serve. They're, they're supposed to share their gifts as they receive the gifts of the congregation. And then after some time, they are moved to another church to take the gifts they receive from that congregation to the other church, to, to have you know, another pastor come in and share their gifts with that congregation. It's not because we particularly like to move a lot. It's because there is this foundational belief that, that we don't want churches to be built on the identity of any human being. And you see that in the church today. There are churches who are built on the identity of whoever their pastor is. And the churches live and die by those pastors. It's just not part of our DNA. And this is why. 
because John understood and began to understand that everybody needs ministry. Everybody needs pastors. And so when, when Methodists were, you know, when, when, when it was happening all through um, America, and we're going to talk about this at length in a few weeks, when we talk about the tradition of the circuit riders, they would, you know, they'd be on horseback, and they're just going from charge to charge to charge. They're preaching that place this week, and that place the next week, and that place the week after that. And then, so every week there's like a new person coming through, preaching. And this is one of those fundamental foundational places where we get this in our DNA as was from this understanding of open air preaching of Wesley saying the world is my parish and really Wesley feeling a call from God um, to move beyond his fear and the fear of those around him and so it's, it's just a simple truth for us that if we are part of a movement of God, we're going to have to learn how to navigate pushback. It seems so simple. It's just a good life lesson in general. But we have to learn how to do it well within ourselves first and then with the people around us. Because one truth is that when God is moving, there will absolutely be resistance. There will be resistance from within and resistance from without. You know, one question that I hope we articulate in some way every week is, is simply this. You know, how is God moving in your life? I believe God's always moving in our life, all the time. Sometimes we're paying attention to it, sometimes we're not. But God is always actively moving in our life. God is calling us to something. It doesn't have to be some great big thing. It can be some really small act of obedience, but God is calling us to something, to be people who pray more, to be people who engage his word more, to be people who worship more, to be people who bring God into our families more, to be people who live as reflections of Christ outside of an hour on Sunday morning more. I feel like God is always calling us to something. And so if you were to pay attention, if you were to start paying attention if you're not already, if you were to seek that voice from God, what do you think God is calling you to? What is God calling you to do? And as you answer that question, what might that pushback be? What might stop you from pursuing that? And then I invite you to remember the words of that song. That we are no longer slaves to fear. That we are children of God. And that if we are called to move across the sea Scripture in that song reminds us that God will split it. Amen? Amen. Amen.